0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne,
1: truly independent community radio.
0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you for listening uh, to Radiotherapy. They're a great crew over there. We appreciate them bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got some science for you now until 12 so whether you're listening live or you're listening to the podcast, thanks so much for tuning in. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're perky. I am. It's Science on a Sunday. How can I not be? <laughs> I,
0: think, I feel like we've had this conversation before.
1: I know. Well, you know, what yeah. can I say? Yeah, you know, it's great to come into the Triple uh, R studio.
2: Yeah. Again.
1: Get a bit of uh, facts again. on your radio.
3: Yeah.
2: It's all fun. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm a little distracted. Your
0: headphones are red. Is that new? Yeah, this is new because I said to them, I need them to match my hair color. Okay. And so they got me some special red ones. But this is new. When I came in this morning and I saw these red headphones, I'm like, whoa. That's... Because I I, I was looking
2: down at my store. I just looked up and I I, I suppressed the jump because I didn't want you to take it up personally. But I was kind (laughs) of a little
0: shocked. Yeah. Yeah, first time in 25 years. Red headphones. (laughs) Rocking, <laughs> Dr. Linden. good morning.
4: Good morning, Dr. Shane, how are you? I'm good.
0: How's the climate?
4: The, well, today, the weather, being separate from the climate, <laughs> is lovely, is it not, in Melbourne? I, I hope that there are lots of people listening this morning, but that they are driving out to the bush to Somewhere. make the most of this glorious yeah. sunshine. Yeah, it's I,
1: nice. I feel that my plants are getting very confused, though. Like, all my spring bulbs are already, like, poking their heads up, and it's like, guys,
2: Settle just down. chill. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally, chill. chill. It's <laughs>
4: winter. I've seen a few jonquils around. I I'm, know, right? Yeah, it's at mm. this stage of the winter, it, I'm just happy to have some sunshine. I mean, not quite winter yet, but,
0: yeah,
4: yeah I'll save the... Save the scary stats till the end of autumn, I think.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll get back to that at some stage. Uh, now we've got some news. We've got a a interview coming up very shortly, actually. So we're going to do a quick bit of news and then some more news at the end of the show. So Dr. Crystal, Dr. Ray, you two, who are we going with? Me. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. So, um, this, this news story with, which Dr. Crystal and I both thought was no, very obscure. No one would find it. But also Um, so
4: interesting that you both read it. Well, (laughs) Well, yeah, but,
2: but it's, it's on conservation and, and, and so it's on how to preserve ancient works of art, or expensive and valuable works of art. And my flatmate in uni um, was in art conservation, uh, and she's actually now the Preservations Program Director at the National Archives in the U.S. So she used to, you know, she, I, we would talk about work sometimes, and, and she would always talk about how hard it was to clean pressure-sensitive tape off Important paper documents, like when something has a rip in it to prevent it from tearing from a conservation point standpoint years ago, they thought it was great to put tape on things
1: well i mean i 've done that for library books you know yeah. i 've important documents, and my one year old is mangled you know yeah. you get out the sticky tape yeah. and you kind of and it 's like' next level it 's like mummy fix mm.
2: but like for, for, for the for the <laughs> telegram that that was the the per, commanding officer of Fort Sumner to president lincoln explaining that he lost the fort. Uh, tape is not, so not not such a good idea because it doesn't stay clear over time. It yellows, it mm. can degrade the paper. But staples though also also would be bad. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: but do you know what <laughs> I never if, thought. if you're in charge of the dead sea scrolls, you kind of think maybe sticky tape isn't the way to go. Yeah, okay.
4: We're talking <laughs> at a different time scale here. Can we not yeah.
0: talk about the dead sea scrolls? Okay. 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 No, because I took a trip once and I was in Jerusalem and they're there at the museum and I got there and then I'm walking, you know, paid and walked in, walked through, and then there was this little sign that said, Exhibition Under Repair. bear. <laughs> They we're probably trying to get tape off. Yeah, We're <laughs> trying to get tape off.
1: Yeah, but because so, it is really. Hard. I mean, you know what it's like. You you try and wrap up your uh, child's birthday present, and then you just go, "Oops, I've done that wrong." You take sticky tape oh, off, takes everything off over. with it. Yeah. yeah, you can start again. Start again. Yeah, you can't really do that when you're working yeah. with like you know precious works of art.
2: So I I remember having a conversation with this this conservator where she was getting her masters and I was getting my PhD and we we're talking on the phone and she was talking about these different solvents that they were using to try to get the tape off and. She was describing him, and I went, "Wait, these things are pretty much going to dissolve ink as well." And, <laughs> and I said, "So how do you get it on?" And, and she said, "There's different techniques about using sponges and very careful brushes and a lot of hand-eye coordination to try to locally dissolve the tape without dissolving the rest of it." And it's a nightmare. Hmm. And, and, and so this is this is some of the like the dexterity conservators have, or the ability not to destroy works of art and get this author. So there was a a group in University of Florence that actually used a great piece of colloid science. And I know that that's not actually a medical condition. It just means it's a mixture of solvent and liquids. Anyway, they used an emulsion. So they took little drops of solvent, mixed in water, and used that to dissolve the tape. But how they delivered the solvent was not a sponge. It was not a brush. This was the ingenious part. They used what's called a hydrogel. Which is just a cross-linked bunch of polymers. Now everybody's gone. What's a hydrogel? Now, where I'm from, it's called jello, but here it's called jelly. Oh, where right. you mix gelatin and water with sugary water, and you make a, a jiggly, wonderful summertime dessert. Mm. And, and so that's actually a hydrogel because it's it's a network of gelatin, mm. which is are, are, are those molecules are actually long-chain polymers. So think of it as like a connected network of spaghetti. And so the water stays in the void spaces there in the gaps. And, and, and of course there's sugar and flavor in there. And that's why I make Jellos t- t- taste lovely. But Jell-O is not the only hydrogel. And in fact, there's lots of them in our everyday lives. So does anyone in here wear contact lenses? I can't, and, you know, I've I have. I
0: have worn okay. contact
2: lenses. Yeah, i do so, that. Contact lenses, when they're not the glass bottle bottoms that Dr. Shane would have had to put on his eyes. <laughs> no, I wore, the,
0: I wore the flexible, um, gas permeable ones. So, not that so
2: old. Uh, like modern-day contact lenses, you would have noticed they're, they're flexible, they're kind of soft, they're a little squishy, and if you ever drop your contact lens and then find it later, it's dried out and shriveled up. Mm. So contact lenses are great examples of synthetic hydrogels. cross link polymers, they hold onto water. And that holding onto water is what makes them so useful. Well, what they did here was they took a hydrogel, um, Uh, a synthetic polymer one, and they mixed in this emulsion where they had very little but enough organic solvents, as these little oil drops as an emulsion, so kind of like a vinaigrette dressing and a hydrogel. And so they were able to use uh, just apply these blocks of hydrogel on the tape. And so it didn't get solvent everywhere. Mm. It actually really contained the solvent in the hydrogel, and think about it. Jelly, when you squeeze it, you don't, your hands get a little wet, but it holds on to most Mm. of the water. Mm. And the same thing happened here. It holds on to most of the water and, and, and these little drops of solvent very slowly dissolve the tape and then pull off the adhesives and the silicon and the rubber. So it's, you could think of it as a a micro or nano sponge.
4: What are we talking very slowly? I mean, do they have to, do they spread this jelly? Oh, so
2: it kind of stays... Wine flavored, I assume. Um, Sorry. And they leave it
4: for a week or a year or...
2: No, no, it's just they they apply it because there's so little solvent there it doesn't act that quickly. (laughs) Because it slowly dissolves it over time, just because it, if you put, if you just put drops of solvent on it would work quickly, but it would run everywhere. So slowly, I think, is a week, but I have to double-check the times on that. Um, and,
1: and one of the things I loved about this is that like, you could actually customise the solvents that you put in the droplets for the application of choice. Like, mm. it's, it's the sort of thing where you can just whip it up um, and, and customise it to the actual adhesive that you're trying to and remove. And I assume also the paper as well, right? That,
4: yep.
5: that Yeah, but the, I guess on. the whole
1: idea is that it, it will never go on the paper mm. and, oh, yeah. and, cause, because of the way that it's released. Mm. Um, and um, and, and I think the the beautiful outcomes from this paper um, was when they applied it to um, a 16th century uh, work of art from the Sistine Chapel. Ray, did you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, so it was a, a drawing of uh, one of the figures from the Sistine Chapel, uh, and it says on it, by Michelangelo. And um, the collector... In Italian. A, in Italian. So <laughs> it... Di Mano di Michelangelo. If it said, uh, by yeah, Michelangelo, yeah, you'd yeah. know it a fraud. Yeah. Actually, there's a question, though, the providence of the saying of the writing on that painting is debated. And oh. so the collector actually put tape over it
4: ah, to hide it. That's my question. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Michelangelo didn't
1: have any tape. No, no.
2: So now that well, they've gotten the tape off, they can actually see the writing and they're actually trying to check if it was actually from him or not. Yeah. But nice. if they
1: weren't able to remove the tape, they'd never be able to analyze it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think for me, the wider application of some of these hydrogel technology is actually, well, like, you know, Bits of solvent are not the only things that you want to very precisely and carefully, um, deliver to a surface. Mm. And actually the applications in medicine for being able to deliver, um, drugs and therapies, um, in a very targeted and specific way through a topical kind of, um, emulsion, um, is actually incredible, like slow release, really fascinating. So Mm. yeah, so I think this kind of technology has a massive application across, you know, arts and sciences. It's really fantastic.
0: Jelly's good. People love jelly. Well, it's it sounds really good. Cool. I love the fact that it doesn't spread. It's um it's really crucial. And you can imagine putting something on your hand over a you know, burn or a freckle or whatever without it spreading over your entire arm. Three. Two. We uh, have on the phone now our first guest for today. Her name is Rachel Dudaniek, she's from Macquarie University. Rachel, can you hear us?
5: yeah i can hear you hi
0: thanks thanks so much for joining us we saw um we saw your research uh was sent to us a couple of weeks ago and it was just fascinating you you're working on damselflies and and their evolution but with the specifics of the interest in how they're responding to to climate change can we can we start off why damselflies why have you chosen that particular um insect to to look at
5: Sure, sure. Well, damselflies, like most insects, are really highly responsive to climate change um, for a number of reasons, one being that they're ectothermic, so they respond directly to the temperature around them, Mm -hmm. Um, so the outside temperature affects their physiology and behaviour very strongly. Um, they also have very short generation time which makes them fast uh, evolvers and they also disperse quite easily. So all these things make damselflies quite um, quite a great sentinel for looking at how species are responding to climate change.
0: And do we see damselflies sort of flies across the world or are they in specific areas?
5: Damselflies are really widespread. They're they're found in all sorts of habitats. Um they're in Australia, they're in Europe, North America, and um, particularly the genus we studied, Ischneuro, is very widespread. Yeah.
4: yeah. Uh, just one quick question. It's Dr. Linden here. So, for someone who isn't familiar with a damselfly, how can you tell the difference between them and a dragonfly?
5: Ah, uh, damselflies are just a lot smaller. They're a lot more kind of dainty and elegant. They're like a miniature dragonfly, really, and they have a smaller um, head. They don't have such big eyes as well so yeah and they come in all sorts of different colors and little shapes and
0: sizes how how long have they been around in their sort of current form i mean you mentioned that you know many of these insects are really good at evolving but you know i I, as i recall dragonflies and some of these insects have been around like since the dinosaurs sort of days i mean it seems like they got things right and just stayed there damselflies like that Have, have they been around for a long long time in their current form
5: yeah, damselflies and odonates, and generally damselflies and dragonflies. They're they're one of the older genera of insects. They've been around a bit longer than some other things, um, but they've you know they've diversified hugely. There's so many different species endemic to mm. particular locations. In a very diverse group. Mm.
0: Now, tell us about the um, the work you're doing, because you've been looking at specific genes in the damselflies and how they've been modified as a result of, you know, shifts in their environment. So give us the rundown on what you've been looking at there.
5: Yeah, so basically uh, we sampled the distribution of a damselfly in Sweden so, and towards its northern range limit. And basically we got in the car and we drove around Sweden and picked up samples of these guys um, along an environmental gradient of about five degrees in latitude. So uh, we collected these samples, and then we DNA sequenced the samples, and then we found out how different genes were changing along that gradient in relation to temperature, wind speed, tree cover, and other Type of environmental variables
0: to see how um, they are evolving and changing in relation to that environment. And, and how much? Well, h- how much of a sort of force do you need from that, that environment for the for the changes to occur? I mean, presumably, these insects sort of even just in the sort of year they would experience a lot of different environmental conditions. So, how much of a shift do you need in order for their genes to change?
5: Uh, Yeah, that's a part of what we were asking. So we were seeing what sort of environmental thresholds were required to see a change in those gene frequencies. And we found things like um, heat shock proteins, so proteins that are involved in thermal tolerance, uh, would stay at the same frequency until you got to about 19 degrees, but then beyond that, they would change to another form of that gene, um, and in quite rapidly. So between say 20 and 21, so and so each gene actually has a specific kind of pattern of, in how it responds to the change in the environment.
0: Mm. And and how complex the damselflies in in this? I mean, is this the sort of thing that? you would see in all other species or is it that damsel, damsel flies are, are fairly simple and able to sort of shift some of these um, genetic factors faster? Is there, is there, is there a difference there?
5: Um, so it really depends on the insect and its behaviour and how specialised or generalised they are. Some, some insects are very specific about where they live and so therefore they may not be able to have this kind of evolutionary response. But other insect species, like the one we studied, are quite generalist. So they have the capacity to change and adapt into different areas, and they can do that quite rapidly. So a part of the, the reason for doing this kind of research is to identify, you know, which species will be able to adapt to changing conditions and which ones won't be able to.
2: Um, this is uh, Dr. Ray. I was just trying to understand that a little bit more in context. Do these genetic changes lead on to physiological different evolutions than the damselfly? I mean, both in, I, I guess, does it affect breeding, how they fly, and I suppose given where they are in the food group, I don't know their taste, to, to larger predators, or do they do they have any yes. physiological changes from these genetic ones, variations? Yes. So,
5: to, to test exactly what the genes do that we found, you would need to do experiments, So it's. Correlative, but we did find the function of quite a few of these genes that were changing um, towards the range limit as they were expanding and um, one of them um, was involved in visual processing so it was an opsin gene and this gene uh, helps them discriminate different colors and we believe that this might help them find food in different environments that they find in their range limit as opposed to the core it might also help them with choosing mates because The females have different colours, so they need to be able to distinguish the different colours when choosing mates. And another gene we found was involved in um, regulating pH and salinity in their cells, and that directly affects their physiology and how they might tolerate like a salty lake um, as opposed to a freshwater uh, lake.
1: Rachel, this is yeah. Dr. Crystal here. Um, I was just wondering, um, as well as genetic changes in the population, I mean, these are damselflies, right? Can, can they just change their habitats? Like, are you seeing them move into different areas? Because like, they, they're they not, you know, they can fly, right? You know, are they just yeah. starting to move into different cli- different habitats and different geographies as a result of this, as well as changing their genes?
5: Yeah, so, so the way... Um so so uh, basically, as they're expanding northward there, certain individuals are more likely to disperse and try out a new environment, and if they can survive there, they'll reproduce and that will eventually be uh, measurable in their genes. Um, and what we've found is they're moving into really habitats that previously we would consider very unsuitable for them, and they're, we're seeing that these... Um, populations are popping up in these really undesirable habitats so maybe extremely cold environments where they wouldn't normally be found.
0: Mm. I'm curious Rachel how many generations you would have in like a given year for example I mean how fast is this evolution occurring?
5: Well um, so these most a lot of insects are just breeding annually so um, you only need You know, a few generations to see changes in these gene frequencies. Um, And insects are are rapidly expanding, particularly in northern Europe, in in the area where we did our study. Um, For example, um, about 38 species of of dragonflies and damselflies have shifted their ranges in Europe by up to 90 kilometers um, over you know in the previous decades. So it can happen quite. Quickly, um, and what we're finding is evolution in response to climate change is happening a lot faster than we previously um, thought uh, in in these widespread, highly adaptable species.
4: Um, so Rachel what do you what are the next steps in this research I can imagine that it's opened up lots and lots of different questions but are you thinking of turning this method to Australian species or looking at more species in Sweden or even trying to follow some of those gene changes a, a little bit further along to imagine how they're going to go into the future what's next
5: Yeah so I actually am starting a project on uh, a here in Australia uh, to look at similar processes and we're comparing species that have very restricted distributions to species that have very broad distributions and seeing, you know, whether they differ in their capacity to adapt to environmental change uh, and one um, outcome of these studies is being able to um, map that adaptive genetic variation across the landscape. And so we can essentially pinpoint hot and cold spots of local adaptation or areas where animals are changing in response to the environment. And why why would we do this? Well, this is really so we can better manage those populations for conservation outcomes.
0: Rachel, um, it's great that you're doing this work. I think uh, the more we learn about how our species are, are evolving and what their capacity to do that is, will be so important in terms of where we allocate resources for maintaining all the species that we have. And, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, at the moment we're a long way from being able to do effectively. So thanks so much for talking to us today on Triple R, and good luck with your future work.
5: You're welcome. Thanks very much for having me.
0: It's great to chat. Thank you. Was Rachel Dudaniak from Macquarie University, and some really interesting stuff, actually. No idea these things are. Mm. You know. people are looking at this, which is yeah. good. Probably enough. Lucky people.
4: for Rachel that Dr. Ewan, Dr. Jen, aren't in the office today, because otherwise
0: she'd never get off the phone. <laughs> That's <right. laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> Yeah, the guys, Ewan you, you would just take the call out during the break. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a short break for some music, folks, and we'll be back with our second guest today. We're going to be talking about volcanoes and plate tectonics and all that cool stuff. So I'm pretty excited about that. Three. To me. Ah. in the studio with us now is professor louis morisi he is the chair of earth sciences geophysics in the school of earth sciences in the faculty of science at the university of melbourne louis welcome to the studio Thank you. Now, we, we've got you in partly because there's stuff, you know, going off in Hawaii, and we thought that would be cool to talk about. But before we get to that, I thought we should do some plate tectonics 101 and a bit about volcanoes. I've got this book at home, this old geology book, that talks about the shrinking Apple model. Are we not using this anymore?
3: No, we're not. I like um. it. it
0: sort of made sense. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, but we can we can see that, and it's not happening like that yeah. now. So. so, so talk us through plate tectonics. I
0: mean, I think most of our audience are familiar with how this works, but if you can just give us a bit on the structure of the Earth and how these things move around and, and what's happening.
3: Yeah, so one thing is very very slowly, um, and the Earth is basically turning itself inside out. Hmm. So the it, the inside is is hot, and it just rolls over, and the plates moving is is is, is how that happens. So you have you have hot rocks upwelling and um, then they disappear again down at the subduction zones hmm. and that's that's what you know the pacific ocean for example is it is exactly that it's just the top of a, of a very slowly moving convection cell hmm. so so you've got some of these so some of the the plates are kind of
0: colliding whereas some are going like one slipping under another what why is there the difference between these two things
3: something um The places where that's happening actually they're both the same process but on Mm. some uh, the continental crust is is actually it's kind of like scum it doesn't go down with everything else and if there are two pieces of continental crust riding around on two separate plates and the plates are uh, essentially going one going under the other then when the continental crust gets to that point where it's going to go down it stops and there's a big collision zone just like the Himalayas Mm, right yeah so that's how we get mountains yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, Now in terms of the, the volcanoes, because this is different, let's talk first about the, the sort of ring of fire. So this is this, uh, one of the things I find fascinating is if you, if you show someone a map of the, of the tectonic plates, and then you show someone a map of all the earthquakes that are occurring, they almost, they almost trace out the exact same lines, don't they? I mean,
3: yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise you can do now. You can go to Google mm. Earth or something yeah. and you can do it for yourself. And Fifty years ago, people struggled to work out what was going on, but you, you can really easily see it just by going to something like Google Earth. So, so why do we get volcanoes specifically? I mean, the,
0: the, I can imagine the, the earthquake path is fairly simple. This is where everything's sort of colliding and so forth. But why do we get volcanoes around these edges of the plates where they're interacting?
3: Yeah, so the volcanoes that, that occur at subduction zones, that's really... Um, that's where the, that's where the plate is going down and it's taking a whole bunch of stuff with it. So okay. it's the, the crust there, the oceanic crust has been, you know, on the bottom of the sea floor, if you like, for whatever, a hundred million years or something in some cases. And, you know, that's hydrated rocks and so forth. And they go, they go down. And as they're going down, they take all that water with them mm. and it tends to come back up again. Right. It gets a certain way down and then the, the minerals that are there dehydrate. And up comes the water and the water, um, can trigger melting and can, can create exactly that sort of, exactly the environment you need for a volcanism and get those volcanoes up above. And so there's some sort of crack at that point where the, the below magma is, is
0: getting through. Is that, is that what's happening?
3: Well, yes, volcanoes sort of, it's indicating that these things sort of localize, right? So you have, Mm. you have the opportunity for a volcano to form. It forms in one particular spot and once it's there, then everything keeps focusing in that uh, same place. Hmm, hmm. Now, that's at the edges of the plates. Hawaii is not
0: at the edge of, uh, my basic geography reminds me that it's in the middle of a plate. That's right. What's going on in Hawaii? They've got heaps of volcanoes.
3: Right, that's that's right. And that's a a very different, uh, that's a very different setting. It's what's known as a a hotspot volcano. Um, That is where there is actually, Upwelling material from probably from as deep as the Earth's core, which is 3,000 kilometers down, and that heat gradually makes its way up. It's uh, you know it's the up um, that sort of you know goes associated with the the down that comes from um, uh, you know, from the subduction. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, and the heat makes its way up, and it, and it it comes up in a in a particular spot. And that spot is a hot spot. Right. And And it breaches, breaches through somehow. Yeah, basically it sort of, effectively it burns its way through the cold plate. And it's in one spot and the plate moves up above and that's why you have this long chain of islands that, you know, the volcano's at one end and they gradually, the islands just die away going off into the, into the far distance. So that's the hot spot literally moving, well the plate moving above the hot spot. That's right, it's the plate moving
0: above the hot spot mostly. And so yeah. you get these chains, and yeah. So you know yeah. where the next one's going to come in a hundred million years
3: or whatever. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, you, you just have to look at, at the, yeah, the Hawaiian, Hawaiian are, Islands today, yeah. and you can see that the you know there's, there's one island where almost all the volcanism occurs, and the rest of them are, are just you know older and older looking.
4: Yeah. And is that the only hotspot in the world? Surely not.
3: Absolutely not. No. And we we don't really know how many there are because they're a little bit hard to. <laughs> Hawaii is an enormous one, and the other very obvious one is uh, is Iceland. Right, Which happens to be also on a plate boundary. It happens to be where the plates are pulling apart, so that's a gigantic example, and you can walk around and you can see everything happening right there. Um, but there are others, and um, they so they tend to we we know that they form initially by sort of a big mushroom shaped plume of hot material coming up from very deep down and when that plume first hits there's a lot more heat and you get what's often called a large igneous province where you have huge huge amounts of of uh eru- you know huge eruption and, and they leave a, you know deposits all over the seafloor um so we know about those and um and we also know that then you know what's left behind afterwards is this little sort of burning ember of a of a hotspot trail but they're not as easy to see as hawaii that's a that's really the classical example mm.
1: so this hotspot that's currently erupting in hawaii right now can it just keep going forever like you know it's 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 a hot spot and it's got all this magma coming out is it called it is magma isn't it when it comes out uh, no no it's called yeah. something else <laughs> <laughs> you know can it, yeah. is it just going to keep going forever or like what happens next
3: well yeah, it depends. Uh, you know, forever is a is a relative term, and geologists think about things in the hundred million year timescale. So, no, um, <laughs> but yes. So, the, the for us, for in, geologists, in my
1: lifetime, so we, could it just erupt for the rest of our lifetime? It has
3: been erupting for uh, well, let's say most of our lifetimes, right? It has actually been, it has been erupting. There's not really, it's never really stopped that particular one, right? It's really been going for. You know, a long time of one individual eruption and the hotspot itself has been going for, you know, tens of millions of years, uh, evidence of all those islands.
1: And so for the people living in that local community, um, you know, or for the other, um, active areas in Hawaii, cause it's not the, that's not the only active volcano in Hawaii. Is it m- likely to create, escalate into more activity or is it not able to predict at this point whether it's going to quieten down?
3: Mm. Um, those things are always hard to predict with any real kind of certainty. I think the good thing about volcanoes is that you can predict them on a weekly basis. That, you know, with earthquakes you have no idea. Right. Uh, at least with volcanoes you can sort of see something is coming. Um, well, I mean, we, we know that it's not going to die away completely and we don't really know how long it's going to go on for. It's a it's a very it's a c- complicated response of something that, you know, on a very big scale might appear to be quite simple but in detail. Mm. Is going to be very complicated to figure out.
4: So the current eruption that's going on in Hawaii happened very shortly after a uh, earthquake. Is that correct? So if this is sort of erupting all the time, when there is an earthquake and then a volcanic eruption, is that kind of interesting from a scientific point of view for you, or is it a bit meh? It just keeps on going, doesn't? It's not scientifically um, interesting.
3: You would you'd look at that, and, and they are. Clearly related. So I think when you look, the, when you look at those earthquakes, they, they showed evidence of, of the fact that it wasn't just a fault sliding, but it was actually due to the magma. Um,
4: so it was a volcano-started earthquake?
3: Uh, yeah, they're, they're interrelated, to, basically. Yes, that's true. Mm. And I think that in this particular case, there have been you know, a huge number of earthquakes associated with the actual um, eruption itself um yeah, but you know you look at that that whole thing is just a, a, a big the, the whole island right it's just a one after another eruption and big mm-hmm. piles of of uh you know magma and ash and so forth all sort of intermingling and um the structure of that is is you know it's, it's kind of fragile that you, that you're you're continually pushing stuff up through something which is kind of made by all these layerings it hasn't had yeah yeah
0: yeah in fact Louis, that, that was one of the next questions i want to ask you was you know we we see this spectacular stuff from above but how much is there that we don't see in terms of the volcano structure because it, it seems to me as though you know a lot of what's happening is not happening visually to us but is happening below the surface how much of that even even the lava flows presumably are happening in some cases through fissures in the rock and so forth you know that we wouldn't see
3: yeah, you, you, if you think about the, the scale of the whole set of islands, the, the, the melts that are being produced that are being seen are 25, 30 kilometers down or maybe more. Mm. And, and so the, right. that, that has to sort of percolate its way up to the surface. And it really does. So most of the, most of the, the mantle, which is just underneath the oceanic crust there, most of the mantle part of those rocks, that's solid. It's not molten mm-hmm. at all. It's just when you, when you, when you create those molten zones, it's really just a little bit in, in the, in the, grain boundaries between individual crystals you actually yeah. just have a little bit of melt that gets sweated out and it's that, that's one of the reasons why it's so unpredictable. You wait for that to collect and then it comes out uh, mm-hmm. at the upper surface as a, as a volcano. And so there's a lot going on and the melts kind of make their way up into an individual volcano and then can drain out again yeah. through yeah. all these fissures and, and cracks and so forth. Now,
0: before we let you go, uh, what's your current research on? I mean, what are you looking into? Because I mean, this stuff, I mean, we could just talk about how volcanoes work all day, but I <laughs> want to do a little bit about what, what you're actually doing in your work at the moment.
3: Well, most of what I do is actually computer modeling. And, and is uh, looking at why we have plate tectonics and how that interacts with other bits of mm. geological sort of uh, things that we can observe at the very near surface. And the computers are great because we can go back, you know, on, on a, by building a model you can go back billions of years in time and put together all these little tiny pieces that people find on the surface. And we can't go deep and we can't go back in time mm. without having sort of a good, physics-based computer model to sort of tie all the things together and and that's really what i'm interested in doing and i look at you know planets and plates and all this stuff as being part of that whole story of how you how you kind of put together a holistic model of the earth Are are there any other planets in our solar system that have tectonic plates that we know about Ah, uh, we've never seen anything, right. and people have speculated about Venus and never yeah. really managed to see. We can't, can't see much evidence. through those clouds, can you? You can. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can see. You can yeah. go and look at Google version of Venus, yeah, and uh, you can see beautiful structures, yeah, but we yeah. don't know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: yeah, yeah.
3: interesting. That. Mm.
0: Well, um, Louis, thanks so much for, for coming in and chatting to us. I mean, this is an area we don't we don't get a lot of um, volcan. You're a volcanologist, or a, how do you define uh, yourself?
3: I think of myself as a geophysicist, geodynamicist. Yep. Not a volcanologist. Not a volcanologist. A little
0: bit. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool stuff. I, I love, my favourite term for, you know, 2004 was pyroclastic flows. You know, people just hear that and they go, what the? And yeah. it's like, yeah, interesting yeah, stuff. Run. Run, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a few films came out at the time and it was like someone used the word pyroclastic flows and I remember talking about it on there. Louis, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. Um, this is really interesting stuff and it's, it's great to see that... Uh, you know, this hotspot stuff is interesting. In fact, uh, you know, I guess it, it says that you don't have to be on that ring of fire. You can get these things anywhere. If one pops up, they, you know, could be anywhere, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Thanks That's for the chat. You. Okay. Nice. Professor Louis Moresi is uh, the chair of Earth Sciences in the School, chair of Earth Sciences, Geophysics in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Three, two, three. Now you are listening to Triple R. This is a science show, and uh if you're still with us, congratulations. you're learning uh now we've got some more news. We haven't quite uh done all that news because we did our early phone interview, Dr. Linden, something about Hawaii.
4: yeah, so it was quite fortuitous that we had such a wonderful guest, uh geophysicist, talking about volcanoes and talking about Hawaii today, because my news I thought today I'd bring in a little bit of information about the Keeling curve.
2: Hello. Hello, right. anyone? Is anyone? that wait? Is that the keel on the bottom of a ship?
4: And no, <laughs> and it's it like keeling over. Ah, oh, see, okay, this is a there's term. Some, there's someone
2: named Keeling.
0: There's someone and the named, curve got keeling. named after them.
4: The Keeling curve is named after Professor Keeling,
0: who uh, <laughs> set up <laughs> an observatory. First, <laughs> have they got a first name? I love Thank you,
2: uh, you
4: his don't know. It. Is, no, his name is
2: Charles Daniel Keeling. Oh, Charles Keeling. Why, why is it, it's always named after the person instead of the function. You know, it's not curve to tell you where to point the telescope. It's got to yeah. be a Keeling curve. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, this curve is particularly famous in the climate science space because it is the longest observed time series of carbon dioxide. Okay. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. In the world. And it is taken at the Moana Lua Leo Yep. the highest volcano in Hawaii. It's actually one of the biggest volcanoes in the mm. world. It's more mm. than four kilometers high.
0: Hey, so can I? So sorry. This is the the carbon dioxide is measured there. Why would they choose that location? Seems to me as though like there's a whole of the gases there that you don't is want. An
4: excellent question, Doctor. Oh, thank you. Yes, and that's why I thought, oh, this is so interesting. I'll get to ask, and then I asked the internet, and I found out the answer
0: myself. Oh. So.
4: Um Hawaii's an excellent place to observe atmospheric carbon dioxide. It's in the middle of the ocean and with these tropical islands when it's nighttime, air often the wind often goes from the land to the sea. So what you get is this beautifully mixed clear oceanic air. That comes, and it's four kilometres above the ground, so it's uh, clear of a lot of pollution and those Mm. kinds of things. And if there is a volcanic eruption, it often stands out very clearly in the curve and you can identify, oh, that's not, so that's sort of um, contamination and they can, they can account for that. Okay. So has anybody seen this curve, this Keeling curve? It's this sort of sawtooth curve that goes up and down, up and down, up and down every year. But oh. the general trend is that uh, it's going up, right? Yeah, it's I
2: think I have seen that so Yeah, yeah. This, Al Gore would have never shown this.
1: Oh, I think he probably. That's,
2: that's, is this, that's the, famous, the, is this stick the
1: famous one that oh. Professor Brian Cox, Cox held up? No,
4: that's a different Q&A? famous climate science curve. <laughs> right. That's the, your hockey stick curve, I think. No, the Keeling yeah. curve, it shows basically the inhalation and exhalation yeah, I've seen this curve. of yeah. the planet every year. Hmm. So in the Northern Hemisphere winter, all the trees lose their leaves. <sighs> They exhale and the CO2 goes up. And then in spring and summer, they grow their leaves again Hmm. and the, the CO2 goes down a bit and so the Keeling curve this year has uh, I'm not going to say celebrated, reached a couple of milestones. Early this year it turned 60. Oh. 60 years this guy's curve hit this guy, this um, observatory has been monitoring. It's now run by his son the son of Professor Keeling, another Professor Keeling who mm-hmm. is is keeping this observatory going. It's run by Scripps uh, Oceanography Centre out of San Diego and last month it hit for the first time ever 410 parts mm, per ouch. million. So when oh. the Keeling curve, when when these observations first began and the first dot and the Keeling curve was made it was, hang on, I've got it written down well it depends on where you measure it was about 315 parts per million okay. in 1958, 315 parts per million and last month 410 and now I think it was about 411 411.3 so, so
0: what, can you, I mean you're a climatologist so I'm going to ask you, can you put that in context? Like, what does that mean in real terms? I mean, when when you say parts per million, mm-hmm. it seems like you, know, you hear that and you go, you know, 400 sounds like a big number. Mm. And then someone says parts per million. And they go, yeah. oh, it seems like a really small number. Yeah. Like, what does that change between 300 odd and 400 odd mean in real terms?
4: Yeah. So I guess the the atmosphere is only about 1% that is sort of greenhouse gases and mm-hmm. other sort of gases. A lot of it's carbon and, I mean, sorry, oxygen yep. and um, the, the main gases. But... What it means is, if you look at a long time scale, this is the highest... Lots of different scientists spend lots of different ways of looking at how much carbon is in the atmosphere and how many greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere mm. in the past, beforehand, uh, and... I think this is probably the highest amount of carbon dioxide in at least 800,000 years right. in okay. the atmosphere.
0: And why did we choose, uh, why did they choose, I suppose, um, Professor Killing, back in the day, to measure CO2? Why? I mean, there's other greenhouse gases that are more effective yep. as greenhouse gases. That's why true. Why CO2? You
4: know, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I think it might have started originally measuring CO2, possibly from a pollution point of view. Right. And originally okay. the institutions in America were uh, measuring CO2 to look at, yeah, pollution, but they, they found that, well, to, to maybe measure the quality of the atmosphere, but they found they couldn't do it in in um, residential areas where they had lots of big mm. cities because there was a lot of car pollution and right, plants right. as well. So up at the top of a volcano is a very pristine place to record what's going on in the wider mm. atmosphere. And another place that's really great is Cape Grim in northwest Tasmania. Uh, I don't know if anybody's been out there near Wool North. That's where CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology have their... Um, Atmospheric Observation Station as well. So that's one of... I think there's three World Meteorological Organisation areas where they've got their baseline Hmm. measurements, and the Southern Hemisphere CO2 levels are a little bit (coughs) lower than they are in the Northern Hemisphere. We get it eventually, though. We get it eventually. I I
0: remember one of our guests years ago... Um, Robin Schofield was, you know, doing all her atmospheric work down in Antarctica. Oh, yeah. And she said, you know, you, you get the Northern Hemisphere stuff there eventually. Yeah. Like, might be a few years yeah. delay, but the cycles of the Earth get, get everything down there. Yeah, um, Because so, it's so pristine, you see it.
4: Mm. Exactly, yeah. So the mean uh, carbon dioxide levels at Cape Grim for last month with 404.2 parts mm. per million as opposed to 410 uh, up in Hawaii. <laughs> so it's sort of... It's celebrate it's, it's honouring a few milestones of this curve. It's the longest one we have. And if you look it up, if you just sort of Google Keeling curve, the image is, it's pretty much like your bread, your bread knife mm-hmm. on an angle.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Not good. Well, yeah, but, but it's great it, that we have that long term data set.
4: Yeah, and it's a really powerful, it's a really powerful image, not only because of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but just this idea of the earth breathing is really yeah, beautiful to yeah, me, I nice. think.
0: And, and can can you correlate, you know, can you connect that up with other methodologies for measuring the same thing? Like, you know, <clears throat> you can use tree rings and so forth to measure CO2 and, you know, can you then connect all these things up into one longer curve that yeah, ends with can. the killing curve? Yeah, yes yeah. you
4: can. Yes, you can. You probably wouldn't do it on a sort of... Inhale, exhale, yeah, scale. Yeah. Uh and there's wider uncertainties if you're looking at um tree rings or ice cores. Ice, ice cores, cores they use yeah. a lot. They yeah. get out the little air bubbles and can measure yeah. CO two from that. But the uncertainty mm. is different. Yeah. It's but not I, direct. Yeah, I yeah. think generally at least eight hundred thousand years we know that it hasn't been higher in that mm. time. Mm.
0: Good stuff. Mm. Dr. Crystal, Ebola.
1: <laughs> I've been keeping my eye on Ebola. Yeah, you
0: do. Yeah, do. You always
1: yeah. thought about nasty infectious diseases. Wow, well, you? you know, nasty infectious diseases are kind of something that keeps me awake at night, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> we think we've got these things under control, but, um, you know, following the 2014 West African Ebola <laughs> outbreak, yep. um, where, you know, almost 30,000 people infected and more than 11,000 people died, That's a lot. you know, that was, that was a, a, a huge, um, public health and global health emergency where um you know we saw a lot of um responsiveness to this um infectious disease. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh there's now been some attention on the fact that there is a, a current um developing outbreak of Ebola in the Congo. And um currently there's around thirty five uh confirmed uh cases. Um but some of the tools and techniques that were used to deal with the twenty fourteen um Ebola outbreak are now being deployed to mm. get onto this quick smart because um this current outbreak is much closer to urban areas and in cities. And and so right. there's a lot of discussion at the moment around um, how to model um, what might happen next. So, um, it's fascinating to watch how the tools and techniques in terms of computer modelling and using the software to actually look at, well, how might this potentially spread? Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the, uh, reproduction, uh, rate of Ebola, like how many people are most likely to get infected, um, upon contact, uh, for Ebola is much lower to airborne dis- viruses mm. because Ebola is spread by bodily fluid contact. Um, whereas, you know, and has a reproduction rate of around sort of one to four. So if you're in contact with a, a Ebola infected person you know they will Most likely infect between one and four people whereas For airborne diseases like Measles it's more like 12 or 18 So you know it's much lower um, Because of its method of transmission um, but also but there are other tools available um, to help with this outbreak, including uh, an experimental vaccine, which was developed by the pharmaceutical company Merck in collaboration with Canadian researchers. It's still experimental, but it's being used because it has been shown to be effective in, in, early, in those early sort of clinical applications.
0: So, so when, when you say the vaccine, though, would that be used like, so if there is an outbreak yes. and there are... You know, clinicians and yes. people at high risk, yes. you would give them the vaccine yes, not is cur- vaccinate the
1: population. Oh, it is currently being deployed to health workers right. and okay. those who are known to be within the communities of infected and identified cases. Right. So we're getting rapid deployment of the vaccine as well as looking at the modelling. But I think it's mm. really interesting is this idea that just because you've got a vaccine in a software model you're dealing with people. Mm. And I think one of the important themes that's coming through in the early response to this um, current outbreak is that there needs to be a level of trust there needs to be an understanding yeah. of people's cultural practices and customs, particularly around, you know, um, rituals for the dead, um, mm. treating um, how people... Um, and families and communities treat their ill and their dead um, in terms of you know minimizing the the contact with bodily fluids to limit the spread of infection mm. but um, i think it's really important that we see that we ha- that we have the technology um, but we also need to understand the human side yeah. to be able to clamp down on these outbreaks
0: absolutely very good uh, now i did want to mention something that's coming up uh, this thursday may 31st there is a half day program it's um, sensory scientific exhibition and discovery day at the biomedical discovery Discovery Institute at Monash University. Now this is really interesting because it's all about um, the stuff that you love, Dr. Crystal, infection and immunity. As she coughs under the desk, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, but it's specifically geared towards one particular audience. Now, everyone can go, but it's specifically geared towards the blind and low vision community. So there was a whole other stuff at this exhibition that is basically tactile, sound-based, olfactory-based, and accessible to those with low vision. So you know it won't be the standard sort of thing that you would see in these exhibitions. It's something really specifically designed to this community. So it's um, it's uh, yeah. Sensory Scientific Exhibition and Discovery Day. I'm sure if you Google that, you'll find the details. It is on uh, Thursday 31st of May um, from 8am till 1pm. That's this week. That's this week. Great. And it's um, sort of the, the end of, I think it's um, called macular Month this month. So I lose track of all these days and months and so forth, but this month is apparently macular Month. So um, this exhibition is specifically for people who are either blind or have low vision and uh, yeah, I think that's a really cool idea. That's great. Yeah, very different. I haven't heard of something like that. So We got sent that through during the week. Um, right. Well, that's pretty much it. We've got to hand over in the, just a minute to eat it. Dr. Crystal, good to see you. It's always Thanks a pleasure, Dr. Shane. In. And uh, you'll keep us up to date on Ebola, I'm sure. Uh,
1: you know, I, I read those. I, I've watched the movies. I've I read yeah. the books. You know, I, I'm, a, I, I'm an that's infectious disease person. So I think it's interesting to watch our sophisticated uh, approaches to how we deal with these yeah. uh, emerging infectious diseases. Yeah,
0: especially, I mean, once and once like Ebola. It sort of tends to burn itself out, I suppose, doesn't it? Because it does it does in terms of it doesn't spread far geographically well
1: it has it has a lower um, yeah. it has a lower replication uh, reproduction yeah. rate but I think that the mortality rate of Ebola so being high. up around 30% yeah. is something that keeps us all awake at night
2: scary stuff Dr Ray good to see you you too I have a craving for jelly right now.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Good
0: luck with that. Yeah. Uh, you're a colleague, Guy. Go yeah. and make yourselves up. Dr. Linden, um, enjoy the weather yes, today. Yes, I will. And don't yeah. freak out too much about the climate.
4: No, I'll bring in some interesting stats on autumn oh. next week.
0: All righty. We'll be um, fired up for that. We're going to go, folks. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. And uh, we're going to hand you over now to the team from Eat It. Have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. This has been a podcast from Free rr 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au